Well, I realize uh, that I'm getting this opportunity to um, unpack Genesis 3, and some of you guys, most of you guys in this room have probably been reading this chapter longer than I've been alive, so <laughs> I acknowledge that, and um, I trust that all of us uh, will acknowledge as well that there's depths to God's word that would make all of us want to come freshly attentive to every passage of scripture because there's more to mine, right? Man, so let's go to the Lord and let's ask him to make a somewhat familiar text uh, fresh and real to us. So let's, let's beg the Lord for that together. Father, we come before you as your sons, thankful to be found in your son. Lord, we recognize that these three chapters in your word are so foundational. And so much of our pain in life comes from forgetting these most basic truths. Lord, give us grace and humility in this moment to just recognize afresh that we need these things more now than ever. And apart from you, we can do nothing at all. Lord, I pray that you would give me grace to rightly handle your word and to depend on your Holy Spirit as I teach. And I pray for these dear brothers, Lord, that you give them ears to hear and all of us, Lord, to have this sense that we are bowing before the God of Genesis 1 and the design we saw in Genesis 2, Lord, so that we can really grasp the weight of what we see in Genesis 3. Make these things real to us. We plead with you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been able to sit under teaching as we've been walking through uh, Genesis 1 through 3. The first pass through, we're really trying to, which is difficult when we're teaching, to kind of slap our own hands and say, okay, don't, don't trace these things through yet, right? Stick with the text as much as possible. Um, and uh, so we heard from Jason in chapter 1, and we got to see this glorious picture of a God who truly did make everything. And he deserves to be recognized as the creator of absolutely everything. And he made us in his own image. We are privileged above all the other creatures. They were made according to their kinds, and we are made like him in his image. And it's a glorious privilege to image God, to reflect his glory, and to have the commission to fill the entire earth with a beautiful picture of who God is. That's the God we got to meet in Genesis 1. And then Genesis 2, Tom, building on that, we get to zoom in uh, the creation account to look at our first parents. And we got to recognize our origins and from the dust. And we also get to see how God provided everything. <laughs> That, that our first parents needed to flourish. He created them in his image. Um, he gives man a work to do. Then he gives him a woman to help him in the work of filling the entire earth with his glory. And there is just this sense of there's lavish provision here to do everything that God's called him for. When Tom talked about the springs going out or the, the rivers going out in all directions, there's just this picture of 
Things are flourishing. All the things are there. You have to work it and keep it, and you've got help. Make it happen. And so we would expect things to go well. And I don't have to risk uh, giving away the story. It doesn't go well. We come to Genesis 3, and we find ourselves in perhaps the darkest chapter of the Bible. When we, sometimes we can get overly, we can get so familiar with it that we actually, we miss the weight of really what happens here. You know, there's a weight here that would make us trace back every bit of brokenness in our lives and the lives of those around us to this chapter in the Bible to know its source of all brokenness. And so as we prayed, we need God to help us sense that weight. But one thing we need to realize as well, and I trust we'll see, is that while this is the darkest chapter in the Bible, it also stuns us with its hope. It doesn't, we don't leave Genesis 3 without hope. Our first parents don't leave the garden without hope. And hope tends to shine brightest against a really dark backdrop. And Genesis 3 is that backdrop. But up until this point in the story, as we've been walking through it, all is well. God is big in the eyes of man. Um, We have the wonderful privilege of imaging God We have been put in an environment, we have everything that we need to live for God's glory, including a helper, and then we're saying, okay, let's get to work, roll up the sleeves, and live this out. Then we meet another character. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 1, and what we're going to do, what I'm going to try to do, we can decide whether or not it's successful at the end, but... I want to walk through this text from three perspectives. First pass through, thinking about it from the the perspective of our first parents, just to not break it up too much, and then walk back through with the perspective of those who are in the wilderness generation, how they would have been receiving this word on the verge of entering the promised land, and then think about it from our perspective. As many of, many of you in here are church leaders, um, all of you are involved in local churches, um, families, and uh, we taste all too often the contents of Genesis 3, so we'll apply it to our lives. Let's do the first pass through. I want to read the text just so that we have it in our minds and we're familiar with it, so please follow with me as I read all the way through chapter 3. The serpent, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work, the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So first pass through, let's walk through the text, looking at it from the perspective of our first parents who know God, are made in the image of God, have been given a great work to do to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. Now, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Jason mentioned in his talk, we see the serpent here 
we don't actually learn much about him. This is a very minimal introduction because he's not the main point. But we do learn a few things about him. It comes in the form of a serpent. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field, and he is created. He's made. But what's going to be really put on display in the feature about this serpent that we need to pay close attention to is his craftiness. That's what's going to be put on display in these next verses. So this is the serpent. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's he doing? This, is this an innocent, honest question? Doubt. Yeah. Doubt? He's trying to create doubt in her minds. What's, what's the subtle implication of the question he's asking, right? Because questions teach too, right? So what, what's the implication? What's underneath this question? What's his assumption? Okay, questioning the character of God. What, what is it specifically that he's implying about the character of God? You might not really love me by speaking something. Okay. Okay, yeah. So he's holding something back from you. And, uh, and so this God that we have met in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is there anything about what we've seen from what Jason has unpacked and from what Tom has unpacked that would make us think that this is a stingy God that we're dealing with? It's absurd, isn't it? Should it be absurd to the woman here? Not absurd enough. Let's listen to what she says. And the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is she completely inaccurate in what she's saying there? Partially? It's always dangerous to add to the word of God, right? Do you notice anything about the instructions there? Let's go back to the text Tom unpacked, unpacked uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let's listen close to them and let's compare them briefly. Let's listen for any differences. I would love to hear from you when I'm done reading. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you Eat of it, you shall surely die. Any differences? Okay, she's adding to the word of God, but the question itself is, is, has this assumption that God is being stingy, and so she, you can tell by the way she's answering that at very least uh, she's doubting and starting to loosen her grip on the command of God. And I loved how Tom brought out um, that piece about about what, what is the most precious thing in chapter 2. I thought it was a glorious question to ask. What's the most important thing in chapter 2? I mean, we read about all these precious stones. We hear about these lavish rivers flowing, um, watering the garden and beyond. We learn about um, all these trees that are 
um, so appetizing to eat from. And, and so God is just lavishing, he's just lavishing the whole garden. So we, we just realize that there's, there's so much that God has provided. There's not anything that he's holding back, but this is not what he has said. Now, one thing to bring out here, it struck me also as Thomas talking, um, uh, the brother brought up like, well, this is the first time we hear Adam's voice in chapter two. That is significant, right? This is the first time we hear the woman's voice. Do you think there's significance here? Whose voice would you think that we should be hearing right now? Who's that? That's right. We would expect to hear Adam's voice right here, but instead we're hearing the woman's voice. And so we know that there's trouble and the woman is loosening her grip on the word of God and watch how the crafty one goes next, where he goes next. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Always gets a little more bold. I think we see that when, when even a society, you can see this on a societal level, when, when a grip gets loosened on the truth, then there makes way for really bold contradictions, right? So here we have it. You will not surely die. So he contradicts the word of God after undermining the character of God. And what he says next, though, is significant. He grounds it. He says, you won't surely die. And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If God, God knows that if you eat of it, you'll have what you really want and what's really to be desired. So again, he's underlining this God is actually stingy, right? But what's, what's really striking and really jarring if we're paying close attention to the language of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the dignity of human beings, we read something that should just jar us in verse 5. What is it? There's a phrase. Well, I think it's interesting that all that's known is good, so why would you have a desire to know evil? Hmm. Hmm. So you know good and evil. I don't know how that would entice you. Hmm. Well, I know, all I know is good, so why would I know? Okay. That's a half true statement. Hmm. The world. Hmm. So half of it's true. Hmm. Being like God again? That's it. Yeah. We read this phrase, um, God just doesn't want you to be like God. And every bit of us reading this text right now, and every bit of Eve should have screamed out, we're already like God. Like as if God's withholding some dignity from them. He's already bestowed it on them. And so notice what the serpent does. He gets, he gets Eve to loosen her grip on the word of God and to start believing wrong things about God. But it's not just um, undermining how she's to think about God. It's also undermining how she's to think biblically about herself. There's this, this build there, but one often leads to the other, right? A misunderstanding of who God is 
and a misunderstanding of who we are as those who are meant to image God. We're all ready like him. Have you noticed, have you ever talked to maybe a false teacher and maybe engaged in one? I remember a conversation not too long ago engaging with a guy. I didn't know he was a false teacher at the time. Uh, the conversation was unfolding. He presented this lunch meeting like he really wanted to think about uh, membership in the church and things like that. And we engaged in a conversation. And the more we talked, the more kind of I was going, hmm, what's this guy really up to? And I started asking some questions just to really feel out where this guy's at. And there was a certain point in the conversation where he started talking about how he's a prophet and uh, um, how he's sent by God to warn churches. And I thought, okay, interesting. Let's test it. Um, well, what do you think your main mission is, you know? And his, his statement, direct quote, was to get the church out of the way. And I said, that's demonic. But notice, um, sometimes as the conversation unravels, there's just something that someone will say that will make you go, mm-hmm, now I know who I'm dealing with, right? Like God. That should have been the phrase that triggered in her mind. If she didn't get it before then, if she wasn't suspicious before then, that should have made her say, uh, Adam, wake up. <laughs> Something's wrong here. We're already like God, and now I know that this was, these are not innocent questions. This isn't an innocent discussion. This is wrong. I don't know it all, but this isn't right. Because I know God and I know he, what he made us for. And whatever the serpent is saying right now doesn't gel with what I know. So we continue. The serpent's done now. He's done his work. Verse 6, the response. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, pause there for a moment and just notice that progression. Again, Tom actually touched on this earlier, but notice verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes, at that point, is there a measure of accuracy in that? Like, this okay? I mean, we go back to chapter 2, and we read about the trees, and uh, verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for fruit, food, right? And then he highlights, too, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good, for evil, good and evil. So it's understandable, you know, that she would see those first two things to some extent, but it's that progression. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Where did she get that? Hmm? Yeah. She, she got that from the serpent. That's not of God. She thinks that's going to make her wise. But what's the truth from what we've learned so far in Genesis 1 and 2? What will make her and her husband wise? Believe in God. And what would that look like? What would it look like to believe God in a moment like this? Obey to obey him. He has spoken, right? 
And I know this is so simple, but this is where we err <laughs> all the time. God has spoken, and we go, yeah, so? <laughs> no, he's spoken. And she's, she's loosened her grip. She's dropped the word of God. And now she's able to say, this will make me wise, actually. Not the word of God, but something else will make me wise. This is such an ancient lie. And I trust many of you who are ministering to other people all the time. You watch this played out. I mean, I've had times within the last week um, in a counseling type setting where I'm listening uh, to the, this person describe how they're thinking through the temptation that they're going through. And I'm just hearing, this is Genesis 3 all over again. She thinks this will make her wise. She thinks this will satisfy her, even though God has spoken clearly on the matter. Result? Oh, actually, I don't want to miss this last part of verse 6. She took it, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see any problem with that? What's wrong with the picture? Yeah. What's a word? If you had to put a word on that, like what Adam's doing or not doing, what would you? He's passive. He's not the guardian. He's passive. Question for you. He's being a follower? What do you think Adam should have done? Before he ate, what do you think, let's say the damage is done in one sense, his wife ate, what do you think Adam should have done? <coughs> What's that? That's right, yeah. Call out to God. Crush the head of the serpent. Yes. What was his job? Tend the garden. Take dominion, keep it, guard it, right? So if he wasn't passive, this conversation would have ended really fast and probably in a really bloody fashion. He should have hacked the snake up, thrown it out of the garden, and he should have said, okay, now, honey, next time, let me handle it, okay? Um, but history has turned out a very different way because Adam was with her, not doing his job, not having a mind to glorify the one who made him. And to see this garden rightly stewarded and spreading over time. And so verse 7, since they ate, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Tom brought out really helpfully, I agree, um, that there's a sense they're naked. They need to be clothed. They need to be clothed. But, so, so the, just like creation, it was incomplete. Their without being without clothing, they were, it was, there was a sense of, sense of incompleteness. But the problem is they weren't meant to be clothed yet. 
and they weren't to be the ones to do it. God was going to clothe them in time. There was a certain appropriateness to where they were at, being naked and unashamed. There was a, there was a beautiful innocence there. And now we see in this moment, there's, there is a loss of innocence that as we read this verse, like we'll never grasp the weight of that fully. I mean, just innocence being gone. We think about it in our day. You know, think about things that our kids have to face in our culture these days. And you just, part of you just kind of aches as you watch. You know, sometimes I just notice like kids that were just so bubbly and joyful and they could play almost without a care in the world. And it's like a certain point they like to get in middle school, for example. And you're like, what happened to them? Like they're so insecure, they can't interact with people, like they're so self-absorbed, like what happened, you know? And they're getting involved in different things that are dishonoring to God, and you're just, there's just this grief that innocence has been lost. And it doesn't take that long, does it? We have a six-month-old, her name is Zoe, and I, I will often come home and say, how's the only innocent one in the house doing, you know? And uh, she's just so sweet. And it's just like this breath of fresh air because you look at her, you'll be like, hey, the only one that, you know, hasn't eaten the fruit today, you know. And, uh, but then you, you watch and it just does not take long. I mean, with the older two, I remember my, my first daughter, Hosanna, when she, you know, her being in that innocent stage and then you start seeing this sinful nature come out and part of you just aches. <laughs> You're just like, why? Where'd the innocence go? Um, we look at this text and we go, after staring at perfection for two chapters, we look here and we go, like that, it's gone. It wasn't meant to be this way. And now they're scrambling, trying to make their own clothing. And it's feeble, isn't it? Fig leaves. Scrounging together anything they can to cover up their nakedness due to their shame. So in verses 1 through 6, you could add verse 7 in there, you have this sense of this is, this is the great deception. It's been played out, continues to be played out through history, but you can trace all deception back to this deception. But now we get to see the consequences of sin, that when we let the beauty that we saw in chapter 2 way in our minds, we look at what's lost and now the consequences that come with it in chapter 3, and they're devastating. They're catastrophic. If we have eyes to see, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What do you think it was like before they ate? When they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden? Joy? Do you think there was any bit of insecurity there? This is just, it's almost unbearable to read this in context. They hid themselves from the presence of God, the one who made them, the one they were made for, the one who they've been enjoying free and unhindered access to, the one they were completely transparent before. 
And now they're hiding themselves from the God who made them. And the sense here, the sense here is that uh, that the phrase in the cool of the day, Jason, what did you say would be a good translation of that for the, the cool of the day? So the wind of the day. And so there's just this sense that however you take it, the idea of, of Adam and Eve walking sweetly in the garden with God at this point, that's not there. Uh, what's here is that God's showing up and all of a sudden for the first time in their lives, it's bad news. It's bad news. And bad weather. And bad weather. And the bad weather is indicating that it's bad news. So their response is what's telling here, is that they're not happy with God's presence. They're afraid of God's presence. And notice, they go from hiding behind fig leaves to hiding behind trees in the garden. Their shame, they're, it's just ratcheting up. With God's presence now, they're um, hiding behind trees in the garden the things that were, they were meant to enjoy, delight in, are the very things that are hiding behind from the wind. They were meant to delight their souls in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. He called to the man. What do you think the significance of that is? Satan went after the woman. Who ate first? The woman ate first. Who does God call on first? Why? He was in charge. So he's taking the responsibility. I mean, this is the point where, I mean, I don't know how many conversations you've had with men in your church with marriage challenges and things like that and having to say, even when the wife is in the wrong for something, to be able to say, I just want you to know that right now, in this moment, God's saying, where are you? <laughs> like, he, he's calling you to account for it, for your household. Um, you are the one who's to bear the responsibility. And in fact, it was your passivity that got you here in the first place. So he calls Adam to account. Where are you? Speaking to Adam. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We just notice here the, some of the results of sin. You go from this innocence, just kind of almost carefree innocence that they had, and that innocence now has been exchanged for guilt and shame, for fear, and for, we're going to see, just fractured relationships 
as they start pointing fingers. Let's keep going through the text. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Who told him? No one had to tell him. His conscience was alive, and his conscience was bearing witness that what happened was wrong. That natural uh, tendency to sow the fig leaves quick, cover it up, and often do it your own way, right? He didn't have to be told. He was stricken in conscience. But in verse 7, when they sowed the fig leaves, there's a sense of were they... Were they, to, to use a word that we learned later on, were they repentant? No. They, were just, they just felt ashamed. They just felt shame for what they did, and they were feeling that. But then you get to verse 8, and then we're uh, verse 8 and following, and now God's starting to ask questions. Who told you that you were naked? You wouldn't have known that. You wouldn't have known that if you were listening to my word, obeying my command. I told you that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did the serpent say? You will not surely die. We're going to find out who's telling the truth. God keeps his word. You will die in the day that you eat of it. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree. No, that tack on. And I ate. It's kind of incidental to my confession here that I ate, right? But the woman, that's what you really need to know, God. But notice, uh, he's, it's really obvious, right? He's blaming his wife. Right. Yeah, so there, he's blaming too because of how he words it, right? The woman that you gave to me, was this helper really fit for me? Notice that he goes from speaking poetry to pointing fingers at his wife and blaming God. He couldn't, he was worshiping God for this gift at the end of chapter two. And now he is, in a sense, cursing God for that very gift. But God asked the question, Where are you, Adam? And then he has some follow up questions. And what's happening here is not just to see that um, this innocence has been exchanged and now there's just this brokenness, that there is guilt and shame, that there's fear, that there's now these fractured relationships. The woman you gave me. But we're to see, we are to see that everything is undone at this point. Continuing on in verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God has, through asking these questions, thoroughly exposed them. It's not just these consequences that felt, God been felt, God has exposed them thoroughly. 
they were covering themselves with fig leaves, but now, as it were, they are laid completely bare before the eyes of God, and it's their sin has found them out. Where shall you go to flee from his presence? Answer, nowhere. They've been found out by God, and now the verdict is in. It's like all the evidence has been weighed, God has, through these questions, thoroughly exposed them. It's obvious. Their guilt is obvious at this point, and they know it. It's not just that their conscience is alive. They've, been, they've had to stare in the face of the evidence. Guilt has mounted, and now a sentence is going to be handed down. Sentence is going to be handed down in order of offense to the serpent, to the woman, to the man, and... What we learn in these words of judgment are going to be um, an explanation for what we experience in this life, and also hidden in it is a gem of hope that really becomes the headwaters of hope that we're going to see an ever-increasing measure throughout all of Scripture. So let's look first. He addresses the serpent. Because you have done this, done what? Deceived the woman. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. I've reserved the highest curse for you. And above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go and eat dust, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You brought shame upon my children. Now you are going to be on your belly licking dust all the days of your life in shame. And as we trace that out in Scripture, we're going to see um, he's going to have a greater day of shame coming in due time. But God wants him to know for sure that he's going to be put to shame throughout all the rest of these days in decisively in the days to come. And that's where he goes next. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is going to be a war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. But then, as many of you know, he gives... These words, as many will call the first gospel in the scriptures, he, singular, male, offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be a singular male offspring of the woman who is going to bruise your head, and we'll hear say we'll say sometimes, crush his head. Why? Because the bruising of the head is more significant than the bruising of the heel. But both of them will be deadly. The day's going to come when that serpent is going to be bruised in a decisive way, crushed in a decisive way, and at whose hands that. Singular male offspring of the woman. And if you're listening to this, if you're, 
If you're Adam in this moment and you're hearing the sentences passed down, you're grabbing onto this at this point going, hmm. Like, things are looking really, really bad, but he's grabbing onto this, and this is kind of the thing that he's mulling over as the sentences are, are passed down. Singular male offspring will bruise the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. The bruising of the head will come at a great cost. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. First it talks about childbearing and when he talks to the man, it's going to be very similar. Something that's super close to home. There's hardly anything closer to a woman than the bearing of children. And he's saying your pain's going to be multiplied there. But when you tie it to chapter 15, you're meant, to, you're meant to think. For that offspring to come that is going to crush the head of the serpent, it's going to come not just at cost to that offspring, but it's going to come at cost to the woman as well and those who follow after her. It'll come through pain. It'll come through pain. And it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What's happening in that verse? Look at chapter 4, verse Verses 6 and 7, Lord, the Lord speaking to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So this sin's desire is for, for Cain. He must rule over it. There's going to be this sense in which the, um, um, that there's this, this brokenness and the ordering that God has made that we got to see in chapter 2 of the man's leadership of his wife protecting, providing, and now we're seeing um, that this man will seek to rule harshly over his wife. And so to the woman, he's saying, the man who's meant to lead you, love you, uh, keep reciting poetry to you, um, is not always going to be that man. That's part of the brokenness that you let in here. To, the, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So just as childbearing is intimately connected to the woman. The working of the ground is intimately connected to the man. And he's saying the very thing you're called to give yourself to is going to be the place where you find frustration, pain, futility. I mean, the garden basically gave itself to Adam 
before this point, and now he's going to have to work for everything by the sweat of his brow. The, the gardening is now fighting back. And so nothing is going to come easy anymore. And every working man says, amen. That's, how, that's, that's the story that we live in now. But then he says this, till you return to the ground, for you, so you're gonna, it's going to be like this until you return to the ground. Wait, return to the ground? Yep. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's another say, way of saying uh, you're going to return to the ground? You're going to die. Because God said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. And this is God making good on his word, that God will follow through, that he will judge sin. And, but notice here when it says, you're going to return to the ground from which you are taken. For out of the ground you're taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think one of the signals in this text bringing us back at the very end of the sentence, there's just this, there's just this deep sense left on us is to say, if Adam would have remembered that he was from dust, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. If he would have only remembered, these are not throwaway words at the beginning of our Bible. When we are told, as Tom was bringing out earlier, that he was made, he was formed from the dust of the ground, that he had the breath of life breathed into him. If he would have remembered his origins, where he would come from, there would have been a proper humility that would have taken God's word seriously. But instead, we think we know better and we end up back in the dust. And the fact that there's a 100% death rate in the world tells us that we've all forgot our origins and that there's a humility that has been lost that was inherent in what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are dependent creatures, that we are but dust. I've just on a personal note, um, this has been a super instructive word for me as of late in ministry, as I've noticed myself getting really weary, seeing some signs of burnout in ministry, and, and some of the most corrective uh, texts in the Bible have come from Genesis 2 and 3, and to realize um, this is what I've been forgetting. I've been forgetting one of the most foundational things about myself. I'm from dust. That I'm a creature completely dependent on God. He is the creator. I am the creature. He stands from eternity past. In the beginning, God. But I clearly had a beginning. And it was a beginning from dust. And it's a failure to remember where I've come from that gets us to go to places that we should never go. And so when we prayed earlier about not forgetting these things, allowing these things to go, like these are the kind of things that we just never want to graduate from. We want to just go back and say, yep, I'm from dust. I need to think about that today. Yep, God made everything and sustains it all. I need to think about that today. 
I'm made in his image meant to fill the whole earth with his glory, starting with my spheres of influence. I need to think about that today. Just going back to the basics. Going back to the basics. And so, a forgetting that we are from dust ends up with us returning to dust. So, up to this point in Genesis 3, we see the great deception. Our first parents deceived. Adam in his passivity, not leading. His wife taking charge. Her being deceived, loosening her grip on the word of God, dropping it as the serpent contradicts the one who made absolutely everything. And they ate from the one tree that they were told, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they found out soon that death has been let in. There is an immediate spiritual death, and he's being told physical death is coming. You're going to return to the dust. They are completely exposed before the God they used to love being vulnerable before. Now they're hiding from his presence, and now their main experience is guilt and shame, fear, broken relationships, a fear of, not a proper fear of God, but, it does, but more of an impulse to hide from him instead of enjoy communion with him. And as if that wasn't evidence enough, God is giving these words, as Tom has been talking about, in poetic form so we don't forget. Here's the consequences. Serpent, let me start with you. The woman, the man, and they're sitting under the weight now of curse. And you can say, this is just so bleak. Thanks for the encouraging word, brother. <laughs> and, and Adam lost his job. Yeah. Like, there, there's no thought of, why don't you go back and get the serpent? Yeah. That's yeah. not, that option isn't open to him. Yeah, the damage has been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't, um, doesn't this chapter preset the stage for us to understand just how much God loves mm-hmm. sons and daughters? Mm-hmm. They don't know he's their father. Mm. They don't know he's supposed to follow. Mm. And so this has to happen because mm. God has to prove mm. or show his nature as a father how much he can love, mm. how much they disappoint him. Mm. We see it in our own family. Yeah. This is the love of the father mm. that is preset because we just don't mm. grasp it in our mm. hearts. That's a really good word, brother. And it is really striking to say that if, if this chapter, if the story were to end at verse 19, um, this would be a really sad story indeed. But it tells us an awful lot about God that we have the whole rest of this story. And especially when we already know how it ends. Have you ever been reading to maybe one of your children and, uh, and you're telling them a story? I mean, my kids, they, they just suck the stories right out of me. I mean... I have to tell them stories when I'm brushing their teeth. I tell them, I mean, some, there's some nights, I swear I've told 10 stories by the time the day's up. And, uh, but I, sometimes I'll, I'll play with them and I'll, I'll tell a story and kind of get to the point where the plot's turning and get to one of those really dark moments and I'll go, the end. <laughs> and my daughter, she's so funny. She's, she's, she's so expressive and she'll say, even in a good story, she'll, she'll say, no, that's not the end, daddy. 
Or if it's even a really good story, I'm like, I've finally told a good story, you know, and you get to the get to the end and it just oh nice crisp beautiful tie the strands and then the ending and then my daughter because she wants more story you know she's like daddy I just I feel like that's not the end of the story <laughs> that's, how, that's exactly how she'd say it and we're reading this and we're just really glad that this isn't the end of the story we're really glad there's a verse 20 in fact verse 20 has been one of the verses that's been freshly blowing me away um, as we've been thinking through uh, Genesis 1 through 3. Because you could say, how would you respond, like under the weight of curse now, when you've just tasted all this, you've heard this verdict down, that's like being on death row, you know you're going you know to die, and uh, you're listening to the verdict, and you're like, is there anything there for me to give me hope? In most of the case on death row, the answer is No. No, there's nothing for you. The consequences are in. I mean, the verdict's given. You heard the judge. It's done. But here, in verse 20, we realize that Adam heard something in the verdict that for some reason, even though he's on death row, he's really hopeful. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. I've been referring to her as Eve this whole time, but this is the first time the name shows up, right? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This verse is glorious. This is not just a throwaway phrase in chapter 3. This is, through the, let me tell you this, naming. We think about naming not often as big of a deal. In his day, a very big deal. Tom was talking about the naming of all the animals, right? Talking about the privilege that he was given to name, name, name. But why didn't he name her in chapter 2? I think we're, this is a signal to us that there's something really significant about the naming of the woman right here at this point. After hearing the verdict given, Adam is responding to something about the verdict that was given, and he's going to express it in the naming of the woman. The man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Well, because she was the mother of all living. Adam is meditating on verses 15 and 16. He knows that his wife is going to go through painful childbirth, but he knows that that's not in vain. He knows that from her will come the singular male offspring who will crush the one who screwed the whole thing up. The one who's came into the garden. And if you're listening, if you're watching a movie, kind of the creepy background music comes on. Should have been a dead giveaway, but the music wasn't there. So they had to wait for the conversation and it didn't go well. But Adam is naming his wife, Eve, because it's showing that he's hoping in the promise given in chapter 3, verse 15, he shall bruise your head. He knows that the day is coming when the garden will be rid of its impurity. The one character that has brought more havoc into the garden than anyone else, he's going to be dealt with decisively that day. 
you can see that Adam is clinging to that ray of hope that he saw in chapter 15 and what verse 20, I take it, as an expression of Adam's faith in the gospel in seed form. He's saying, I want to be part I want to be part of this people. I want to be part of this people, the offspring of the woman, not the offspring of the servant. I want to be the part of this people, the offspring of the woman. And I know to be part of these living ones, I must somehow be connected to the singular male offspring that will deal decisively with the serpent. So there's a note of faith there. And then God's response, building on that, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I'm sure many of you have thought much about this birth. I think it's powerful to think about it in light of verse 20. Adam responding in faith to this verdict, the one ray of hope he could grab onto, God saying, response to Adam's faith, he clothes him with garments. And it's significant, I think, that it's said explicitly that they're made of skins. It's not just something else. Like something had to die so that you could be clothed, right? And all of this, all of these are pointers, all of these are pointers. The seed is going to come. And the whole point of all these generations of, generations of, generations of, is we're looking for the seed, the singular male offspring of the woman. The whole point of the storyline of the Bible is that, that what's in seed form in Genesis 3.15 is going to get clearer and clearer and clearer. And for the one who has ears to hear, all of our hope is bound up in it. So we'll wade through genealogies because we're, we're looking for this one because we're under the same verdict and he's, that's the only ray of hope that we have. And it's bright indeed. And that picture gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Some of you older men, what were TVs like? Like back in the day? What was the resolution like? <laughs> so what's it like for you to watch these high definition TVs now? It's a while. I mean, you probably appreciate it more than most, right? I mean, we just we did, we see it. We're like, yeah, no, there's iPhones too. What's the big deal? But you're looking at it going, wow, definition has changed, and that's. What we're going to see, this picture that's a little fuzzy here, but clear enough for Adam to cling to it. When you're on death row, you're grabbing on something. And that was a genuine ray of hope right there. But the beautiful thing is for us is we get to watch this get clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer until it comes into perfect focus when a second Adam comes. But we have to wait to hear about that. So God closed them. There is a need to be clothed. And the clothing here is more permanent than what they could do for themselves. Theirs was wholly inadequate. God clothes them. Sufficient for now, but it's still, there's still a sense of it's not permanent enough. This isn't the right clothing. Um, there's more. 
and we hear a lot more about clothing as we continue to walk through the storyline of the Bible. But then you get to verses 22 to 24, and it's really, on first read, this, is really, this really seems like a merciless act of God. But as we read it closer, there's more hope. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. At that point, you're going, wouldn't mercy just say, let him eat. Let him eat. Mercy doesn't leave him in the state that he's at. That's right. That's right. We see an incredible picture of mercy here. I'll read through the rest of it and build right on what you're saying, Jason. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground. Notice it doesn't. You missing part of that? Are we missing a phrase? To work keep. Huh. Where did that come? Where did that go? Adam lost his job. Who got it? To work the ground from which he was taken, he drove him out, drove out the man and at the east, at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Someone's got Adam's job. But Adam is sent out with a note of hope. But notice that. Let's, let's ban Adam and Eve from the garden, lest they reach out, eat of the tree of life, and live forever in sin, in this broken, fallen state, in a place where, where their normal experience is futility and frustration and pain and broken relationships and fear and isolation and alienation from God and guilt and shame. So I think we do see, I know we do see the mercy of God here. We're not going to let him reach out his hand and eat of that tree lest he lock himself in a permanent state of brokenness. I have a better plan. I have a better plan. It's not that he'll never eat of this tree. There will come a day that he will eat of this tree. That's how the story is going to end. The garden will be opened again, and they will get to eat of this tree, and it will be healing. But until that day, there has to be a provision made to get back into the garden. And so putting this together now, he's left with a sense of these consequences are intense. It doesn't change the verdict in the sense of, I'm still going to go to the dust. I'm still going to live in this brokenness, pain, futility, all of it. But I'm clinging to hope in seed form that something awesome is going to happen through this singular male offspring of the woman. And somehow, somehow the garden's going to be open again and somehow I'll get to eat and live forever. 
And this is the story of the Bible. That How's that going to happen? Glad you asked. God tells us in the rest of the book. I'm looking forward to tracing out some of these things in the next talk I get to give. But until then, just pause for just a second and just, just think really briefly about how this would... Um, how this would be thought about if you were in that wilderness generation and you're on the verge of going into the promised land and as Jason was describing, you're attending funerals every day because there's just death everywhere. And if you are a faithful Israelite and you're thinking about um, entering into a promised land, you're thinking, okay, we're getting another, we get another shot. We're getting another Another try. We're getting to go back into the garden. And if you're hearing these words, they're, they're probably doing a number of things. I mean, you're looking at all the death around you and saying, God really means what he says. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God always keeps his word. But you're having to remind yourself, okay, he made everything. He gave us a mission to reflect his glory as his image bearers and to fill the whole earth with his glory. He's giving us something that is like a new garden. How will we flourish in this garden? I mean, it's a place flowing with milk and honey. The provisions are in place. How will we flourish there? What should be the thing that we hold as more precious than anything else when we're in this new place? Answer, the word of God. <laughs> Cling to his word. And this is a word given to our first parents. Um, maybe we'll get a chance to flesh out more of that, how this would be viewed, these three chapters from their vantage point. But I want to close with taking just a minute to think about, um, we've done some of this, couldn't help it as we're walking through, but thinking about how this applies to us as believers and as many of us pastors and church leaders and just thinking about, doesn't this make sense of all the brokenness in life? In our own lives, in our own character, our own fallenness, we trace it back, you know, trace the river back up to its headwaters and we go, yep, this is where it came from. We live in a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 3 gives us a heavy dose of realism in life, and it gives us really um, uh, anchors to know and have an understanding of what things were meant to be and why things are the way they are. And this just happens to be the world that we live in. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We're not a people so ill-equipped that when we see evil, we, don't, we can't name it. We can name it now. We see it for what it is. And I, wanna, I would love to hear, take a few minutes to just hear from you guys. And you can choose to be as transparent as you want or just sharing from your own life or from situations. You don't have to name names. But what are pictures of the curse that you are seeing now in your life? Just trying to connect the dots to say this is where it comes from you guys lead out and I'd love to let's just let's just hear it let's just name it for what it is connecting it back to Genesis 3 what are pictures of the curse what are consequences of sin that we're seeing broken marriages broken marriages 
gender confusion. Gender confusion. I had to tell my children and my grandchildren because I don't really want to live. Because I have a terminal cancer and uh, I sat on down. Told them I loved them. Mm. But, I was mm. but I told them at the same time that I was like I know where I'm going. <laughs> Amen. And so uh, mm. it was my gift for them mm. given that thing mm. that my faith in Jesus. Mm. So, Amen. So you're seeing curse. Grandpa's going back to the dust. But God has made a way through Christ where I don't have to fear death anymore. Yeah, I uh, thanked and got the message. Mm. We understood. Mm. So. That's sobering and that's beautiful. Praise God you took the time to do that. Galen? I would say, uh, first of all, off to the side, 137 funerals a day uh, mm. in the desert. Uh, Two million over 40 years. Uh, mm. But anyway, secondly, I would say... Uh, like tracks on the kitchen floor, self keeps trying to rise up, mm. even though I'm in Christ. Mm. Uh, sinful nature, mm. remnants of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, all, all the, all the orders, entitlement, pride, uh, self-centeredness. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. The, the constant. Uh, Attempts to try to create a righteousness of my own. Hmm. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that, brother. It's so true. We're constantly prone to that. We have a lot better clothing now in Christ, but we still try to sew fig leaves for some reason. Yeah. Comment and question. So, in in the end of three, they've dropped that Lord God. They just mm -hmm. call him God. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't know, I'd love to hear his comments on that because it goes through and then until after the fall and then Lord God shows up. Mm -hmm. But but to me that just says, is he, is he my Lord? I, not everyone knows him as God. Well, unless they're not being honest, mm -hmm. I guess. But is he Lord and is he Lord over every aspect of my life? That's just what, I, what it reminds me of. But I was just curious your thought of, is there significance there? And how that just Where is it dropped? Um, at the end of three, Satan says, did God actually say in the moment said, but God. Oh, the beginning of three. Okay. I'm sorry, yeah. The, the, the mm. end of, I'm sorry, the end of uh, chapter, verse one. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, that's, that is, that's helpful. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but now that you, you bring it up, I mean, he's, he's, seems to be, yeah, casualness there, and he seems to be detaching in our mind the, the fact that he's covenant God, but, but of course, that's, to the wilderness generation would be seeing that, but but it's interesting that it that it comes back really clearly at the end of three, which would be such a symbol of hope and renewed if possibilities. If, if Eve and Adam, if it was their Lord God, yeah. they would have done what they should have done. Yeah. Said, no, He's Lord. So something. Yeah. It's a good application. Yeah, it's a good insight, thing. brother. Good insight. What about any other guys on the curse piece, though, or you know, just pictures of the curse? Yeah. 
Yeah, as pastors, we see that. It's just so grievous. You're like, why can't we just, yeah. Hmm. Just life's got way more complex and perplexing. It's really hard to sort things out sometimes. Yeah. Lack of ability to rest. Hmm. What well, used to come so naturally when we weren't running from God, now it's hard to rest. Yeah, that's. I feel that one. Yeah. That's, that's really good. It makes me, connecting that to Greg's point about the fig leaves, I just think that we're trying to find all kinds of things, you know, to, to cover up our shame, to distract ourselves with, um, to relieve our consciences um, from the guilt we would feel and have to deal with. I think they're distractions. They're a form of fig leaves there. Yeah, I think there's brokenness in our culture. Anything else, guys, in closing? I think just sicknesses. Mm-hmm. Old age, yeah. Really. I mean, you get to Ecclesiastes, you know, which I think in a lot of ways is an extended meditation on Genesis 3. You, you know, you just see this, this fade that's experienced in age, you know. You shoot up in the flower of youth, and then it just fades out, and you're just, there's a sense in which it's not meant to be this way. Yeah. Being in education for 15 years, that whole thing is how education has. Hmm. There's so many gods. Hmm. So the God that we see in Genesis 1, hmm. the only hmm. God. But Jesus gave him another name. Hmm. He called him Father. Hmm. Um, if I'm not wrong, that's, it was Jesus who said, call him Father. Call who Father? God. Hmm. <clears throat> There is, there, there's something to be said in our day of levity, um, where it doesn't seem like we're able to think much about these, just the depths of sin and brokenness a lot of times. It seems like, I think even in, in just really well-meaning, and, and even in our circle, sometimes we can just say, we're saved by grace in Jesus, but we don't take the time to really think about, like even meditate on our brokenness, right? Because we don't want to have a, who, one brother thought I hadn't heard that before, but a worm theology where we're just like, I'm just a worm, I'm just a red, you know. That's not how we're meant to walk around in Christ. But at the same time, taking time to recognize that we are dust and we're actually returning to dust because of our sin and recognizing the types of things that are brokenness. It takes, it, it is worth meditating on Genesis 3 to feel something of the weight of depravity and to see ourselves in the story as the ones who ate the fruit, were deceived, ate the fruit, were under, um, have been thoroughly exposed through our sin, have now a new normal of brokenness in the world, 
under the weight of this conviction and judgment, but yet living with hope in a very broken world. And um, I, love, I love the song we sing at Christmas time, that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. You brothers, we just shared, and we could be here all day and not exhaust the brokenness we see in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. But our hope is that there is one who's going to come and he's going to put things right. All of our hope is bound up in the singular male offspring of the woman who is going to come and make it all right again. And that definition is clear for us when we remind ourselves of it from where we're at in our vantage point in redemptive history. And so let's, let's as we go to lunch together, let's just be encouraged by this fact that he comes to make his blessings full as far as the curse is found. Look at the things in your lives, brothers. Let's look at the things in our lives and say, he's making all things new. Do you want me to pray or did you, do you want to come say a word? And then uh, some of you, uh, like I know Brian's group, he uh, paid for everybody, but if uh, for some of you, you haven't um, uh, paid for meals or whatever, so just come find me if you're wondering about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Father, thank you for this time in your word. We recognize that there are depths that we will never fully understand. But it's our prayer, Lord, that even these simple, clear things in Genesis 1 through 3 would land on us with a freshness, Lord, that would make us just humbly recognize that we will never graduate from them, that we want to acknowledge that you are the God of the universe, that you were and you are and you always will be, that you stand outside of history, yet you have entered into history in the person of your son. And we have hope today, even though we will return to the dust, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to fear death. We thank you that your son came to make your blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Lord, so we come out of Genesis 3 with hope that we are clinging to. Thank you that we get to go enjoy simple pleasures in life like food and fellowship now. Pray that you'd bless it to us, Lord, and um, help these things sink down into our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.